0: Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing okay. I was just working on our garden. And by working on, I mean looking at and nodding slowly as though I know what I'm looking at. And I made a couple of very exciting discoveries. First of all, we have two tomatoes and an ear of corn that are ready. Yes, after months of patience and gallons of water, we now reap the reward of a little bit less than $3 worth of produce. But even more exciting for me was my other discovery, which is we have moles. Now, I know objectively that's a bad thing, but for some reason I was genuinely excited by it. I think it's because moles are things that I've only encountered in cartoons before. So when I saw that little pile of dirt with the hole in the top, I was on a certain level. Wow! Anything's possible. What new cartoon thing will happen? Spinach-derived super strength? Avoidance of hamburger debt for nearly a week? Uh, Okay, I've been watching Popeye lately. But Popeye isn't the cartoon I first encountered moles in. My first cartoon mole exposure came from a show that was on when I was really little that I half remember called Shirt Tales. Now, Shirt Tales was about a group of anthropomorphic animals that all lived together in either a park or a zoo. It's tough to tell, because here was the makeup of the team. It was, I'm pretty sure, a tiger and a panda, and a raccoon, and an orangutan, and a kangaroo, and a mole. So you'd think it was probably a zoo, but if it's a zoo, what are the raccoon and the mole doing there? And if it's a park, it is wild that those other animals are just hanging out there. Also, I think they had an airplane. Anyway, my two favorite characters were the mole, who was named Digger, because he could dig, and the orangutan, who was named Bogey, because he was obsessed with Humphrey Bogart. Which seems like kind of a weird reference for a cartoon aimed at small children in the early 80s, but kind of makes sense with the rest of the premise of the show. Because the defining characteristic of this group of animals was not that they could talk, and not that they could fly a plane, and I think fight crime was something that they did too. But the gimmick that was the selling point of these animals was that they wore t-shirts. But not just any t-shirts. T-shirts that had words on them. Yeah, that was the hot trend that the marketing people behind that show were hoping to cash in on. Now, I know the early 80s were a while ago, but I'm pretty sure that people had had t-shirts with words printed on them for a while at that point. At the very least, it wasn't technology people were excited about anymore. It would be like if I came out with a new cartoon that was about a bunch of sentient carrots that all had car phones. Which, come to think of it, is a show that I would watch. Also, they're burglars, and one of them is a duke. Anyway, that's why I was excited to see a molehill in my garden. Now, while I'm waiting for the royalty checks to come in on my cell phone carrot burglars cartoon, Let's talk about a comic book. Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's Synopsis Rhyme is submitted by Lucas Bickford. Bozos, bozos everywhere. How many bozos are out there? There's Doctor Strange pushing people around. There's also Jack Norris acting like a bad clown. Beast Boy keeps making snide remarks. And Nighthawk is twice as bad after dark. Keep your eyes peeled for bozos using this bozo-filled synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, Lucas. New Teen Titans, Volume 2, Number 26. December, 1986. Twister Shout! Written by Marv Wolfman. Drotted by Eduardo Barreto and Kerry Gamble. Inked by Eduardo Barreto and Romeo Tangal. Lettered by John Costanza. Colored it by Adrienne Roy, and edited it by Marv Wolfman and Mike Gold. Teen Titan Roll Call Wonder Girl, Beast Boy, Cyborg, Aqualad, Hooray! The Flash, the Wally West one, Jericho, Starfire, Robin, the Jason Todd one, Nightwing, and Raven. Previously in New Teen Titans, It's been a bit of a rough patch for our titular teenage team. After saving the universe by murdering the extra-dimensional bad dad who had been living in her bird-shaped soul tummy, Raven had apparently died. The Azerathian empath managed to somehow resurrect herself, but was almost immediately kidnapped. First by a colony of lepers who availed themselves of the avian-themed enchantress's healing abilities, and then by the Church of Blood, an evil cult headed by an occasionally dead septicentennial self-styled murder messiah named Brother Blood. And Raven wasn't the only Titan having a turbulent time. Nightwing and Starfire had decided to visit Coriander's home planet of Tamaran. Once there, Starfire got roped into an arranged marriage and embroiled in a bloody planetary civil war. Dick was understandably distraught that his girlfriend was marrying someone else, so after celebrating his 20th birthday by sullenly nursing a cup of coffee, the angsty acrobat returned to Earth. Wonder Girl urged the jilted gymnast to process his feelings about what had happened, but Dick lashed out at his crime-fighting comrade and stormed off, determined to rescue Raven from the Church of Blood without the assistance of his adolescent associates. Journeying to the cult's headquarters in Zandia, a fictional Baltic nation populated entirely by criminals, Dick donned a disguise and infiltrated the church, but after making his way to his bird-themed buddy's cell, he was shocked to learn that Raven had been brainwashed into joining the cult and did not wish to be rescued. Dick was captured by the church's guards, and soon he too had his brain freshly laundered. Back in the Big Apple, the rest of the Titans had their hands full with problems of their own. Beast Boy's stepfather, Steve Dayton, the fifth richest and therefore fifth most trustworthy man in America, had long teetered on the brink of sanity due to a debilitating addiction to wearing a reality-warping magic hat, which he called the Mento Helmet, so we call the Freshmaker. A recent cosmic event involving the rakish British archmage John Constantine had sent the perturbed plutocrat over the edge and snipped his already fraying tether to consensus reality. After donning the Freshmaker on a permanent basis, Steve's long-simmering annoyance with his objectively annoying stepson Gar developed into a full-blown mania, and the berserk billionaire became obsessed with murdering Beast Boy and his teenage teammates. After failing in his initial attempt at terminating our teens, Steve began assembling his own squadron of super-powered subordinates. Using a combination of his Freshmaker powers, his fast fortune, and the plot-convenient properties of the fictional element Nonsensium, Steve began experimenting on comatose bodies he had delivered to his secret lab. The result of this unethical experimentation was a group called the Hybrid, which consisted of Pterodon, a humanoid pterodactyl. Gorgon, a snake-haired dude with the power to literally petrify people, Harpy with an eye, who can fly and shoot lasers out of her eyes, and Behemoth, a nine-foot-tall sumo wrestler. With the exception of Behemoth, who seemed pretty into it, most of the hybrid weren't thrilled to be working for Steve, but the belligerent billionaire used his Freshmaker powers to subsume their wills. Concerned about his stepdad, Beast Boy implored the rest of the team to help him track down the cognitively compromised captain of industry so that he could get the help that he needed. Initially resistant to the idea, Wonder Girl eventually relented and enlisted the aid of some old friends. Namely, Wally West, formerly aka Kid Flash, currently K.A. The Flash, and Aqualad, aka the greatest Teen Titan of all time. Hooray! With their roster thus bolstered, the Titans headed out to look for the Freshmaker's hidden headquarters. But before they could find it, they were ambushed by those involuntary evildoers, The Hybrid. The two teams clashed, and after a series of battles, the hybrid retreated to their hidden base. But Aqualad allowed himself to be taken captive by Harpy with an Eye, so that he could gather more information about the whereabouts of Gar's frenzied father figure. The rest of the team regrouped and met with Jericho's mother, Adeline Kane, who used her extensive network of spies to help locate the elusive industrialist and his aquatic abductee. Addie's associates soon found the address of Steve's hidden lair, and the team prepared for action. Cyborg feared the gang might be walking into a trap, but with a sly grin, Wonder Girl announced that she had a plan. Gadzooks! zooks What will our heroes do to rescue their objectively awesome amphibious ally? How will our put-upon protagonists deal with confronting unwillingly evil adversaries like the Hybrid? And just what is this amazing plan that Wonder Girl is so proud of? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so… nothing. Absolutely nothing. They fly halfway around the world and confront a totally different group of supervillains instead, and I guess her plan is to chill out and watch some cable news, because that's what they do. Now that they know where their kidnapped teammate is being held hostage, and they allegedly have a plan to rescue him, the gang settles in at the Kane Estate to watch some TV. Hey, guys. I know how exciting it was in the 80s to visit a relative who had cable, but maybe you could just focus on saving your friend? No? Okay. The program they settle on is a puff piece about the Church of Blood being done by news anchor and not-so-secret acolyte of the Church of Blood, Bethany Snow. The church's leader, the surprisingly spry supposed 700-year-old Brother Blood, is suffering from one of his occasional bouts of unaliveness, so Bethany is interviewing the cult's provisional pontiff, Mother Mayhem. Mayhem gives a little speech about how great and not at all evil her evil cult is. She mentions that in a few days they're going to have a big ceremony on national TV where they resurrect Brother Blood. Must be sweeps week. She also mentions that the church doctrine is so powerful that they have been able to convert formerly outspoken critics of the church like Nightwing and Raven. The camera focuses on the two bird-themed former titans as they smile happily and chant Brother Blood's name. It's pretty creepy. The gang is freaked out by what they've just seen. Wonder Girl is like, Okay, we've got a decision to make. On the one hand, we have two friends who are in a bad situation in an unknown location, but they don't appear to be in any immediate danger. On the other hand, we have a friend who is being tortured by a madman whose address we just found out. So, who should we rescue? Nobody can decide what to do. So Donna is like, Okay, as team leader, I guess it's up to me to make the tough calls. Beast Boy... You seem pretty freaked out and worried about your stepdad right now, and just kind of emotionally vulnerable in general. My call is that you make this decision. Damn it, Donna! Beast Boy is like, Uh, shit, I I don't know, I I really want to rescue Aqualad and help my dad, but I'm usually wrong about everything, so... Fuck it, I I guess we rescue Dick and Raven? Donna is like, Well, okay, if you say so but if anything goes wrong, just remember it was your choice. Come on, guys. Gar says we can't go rescue Aqualad. Sorry, but it's out of my hands. Wow. Maybe Wonder Girl's grief counseling business has been slow lately. Because this seems like the therapist equivalent of a dentist handing out free candy. Cyborg points out that without Aqualad, they're back to being a little understaffed. But Donna is like, Oh, I've got a list of heroes who have offered to help us out if we needed an extra hand. I was planning on calling in someone special to work on this job with us. A real secret weapon. Wally's like, uh, Donna, last time you needed extra help, you invited Hawk, and we had to spend most of the mission trying to stop him from murdering people. It's not him again, is it? Donna's like, well, not anymore it isn't. From the depths of his hidden lair, Steve and his hybrid henchmen use the Freshmaker hat to watch the Titans' decision-making process unfold. Steve is like, What the fuck? So they're not coming here? Do they just not give a shit about Aqualad? That is fucked up. You know, it's not often I find myself on Team Steve Dayton, but the Freshmaker has a point here. What the fuck? Steve continues, You know what? I'd been planning on a prolonged torture session on Aqualad, but maybe I'll just kill him now. And I'm off Team Dayton. Steve uses his magic hat to turn Aqualad into a pile of dust. The rest of the hybrid are like, hey, 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 Steve, knock it off. We'll do whatever you want. Just don't hurt Aqualad. We will totally help you kill all the other titans if you want, but not Aqualad. He's the best. Steve is like, fine, whatever. He turns Aqualad back into Aqualad and dunks him in a tank of water. Hooray! Back at the Titans Tower, the gang greets the secret weapon that Donna has called in as a reserve. Who could this exciting and powerful addition to the team be? Superman? Martian Manhunter? No. The mighty individual that Wonder Girl had been keeping as an ace up her sleeve is... a precocious 15-year-old boy with no superpowers. That's right. It's Jason Todd. Robin. Ah, uh, okay. Look, I like Jason Todd, this era of Jason Todd anyway, but I don't really get the impression that the Church of Blood will be quaking in their boots when they find out that a kid in a Speedo with some Batarangs is on the way. Fortunately for the Titans, a few minutes later, additional reinforcements arrive. Starfire is finally back from space. Hooray! After a few hugs and shrugs, the gang piles into the T-Jet and zooms off to Zandia. Their plan, if it can be called that, seems to be that they will show up to the country that is the headquarters for the Church of Blood, and then just kinda beat up random people until someone tells them where their friends are being kept. Huh. The citizens of Zandia are a pretty well-armed bunch, so the battle isn't totally one-sided, and after a full day of attacking civilians, the Titans retreat to a campsite in the countryside for a well-earned rest. Around the campfire, the gang hangs out and clarifies what their tactics will be on the next day. Apparently, their goal is to gain access to the Church of Blood's main compound, with the hope that maybe somebody left some folders around labeled evidence that might give them a clue as to where Dick and Raven are being held. The problem is, the Church of Blood is sealed up pretty tight. But the good news is, the President of Zandia has a garage door opener for the church that he keeps in his desk drawer. So instead of busting into a church, the Titans just have to break into the office of the Zandian Head of State. Oh, that's much better. That evening in the Zandian capital, the city council has a meeting to figure out what to do about the Titans. The city council is made up of the most hard-bitten, immoral, sociopathic criminals in the country. Oh, wait, that's redundant. I already said it was a city council. Burn! Take that the very concept of local politics! After much hemming and hawing, the council eventually arrives at the conclusion that they must summon... THE BROTHERHOOD OF EVIL! Wait, Magneto and his flunkies who were always fighting the X-Men? No, that's the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. The Doobie Brothers' underrated 1991 solo album, which featured the singles Dangerous and Divided Highway? No, that was just called Brotherhood. The Brotherhood of Evil is the group of Doom Patrol villains led by a disembodied brain with a vocorder named The Brain, and a hyper intelligent talking gorilla with a French accent named Monsieur Mala. Hooray! The council's only question is who will contact the Brotherhood? This proves to be a bit of a sticking point, as the Brotherhood of Evil can sometimes get a little murdery, and things didn't go super great the last time they were in Zandia. Suddenly, the door of the meeting hall flies open and a strange voice announces that they will summon the Brotherhood. The strange voice turns out to belong to an equally strange individual, a young woman whose face and outfit are both startlingly asymmetrical. She looks a little like Sloth from the Goonies, and a lot like that one Picasso painting of a lady that looks kind of like Sloth from the Goonies. The members of the council recognize her as Twister, a lady who the currently kind of departed Brother Blood experimented on warping her mind and her body, and granting her the power to make those around her have the equivalent of a super bad acid trip. Twister thinks that the changes Blood made to her were definitely for the better, and is very kindly disposed towards the septicentennial cult leader. So if fetching the Brotherhood of Evil is something that might be useful to the Church of Blood, then she is all in. At least I think that's the gist of what she says, Her syntax is all fucked up in a way that's not really presented in a consistent manner, so it's a little difficult to tell for sure. It's like part Yoda, part the Hulk, and part Bizarro, but not really quite enough of any of those. Huh. Reading back that description, I think I might have just invented Shrek. Sorry about that. Twister heads off on her mission, and the council seems pretty stoked that she's gone, because they may be murderous thugs with the blood of thousands on their hands, but she was kind of weird-looking, and that creeps them out. The next morning at dawn, Twister rides her motorcycle out of town to go fetch the Brotherhood of Evil. On her way out, she swings by the Teen Titans' camp. The gang thinks she might be a Zandian advance scout and knocks her off her bike, so Twister retaliates by using her powers to freak the fuck out of the Titans' respective beans. Beast Boy starts seeing himself as a bizarre amalgam of all the animals he's ever turned into, and Starfire, Wonder Girl, Jericho, and Robin start to look all melty and trippy. Only Cyborg is initially immune to her powers due to his mechanical eye, but when Twister moves in closer and grabs him by the wrist, the mostly molybdenum marble starts tripping balls as well, and sees himself as a nightmarish cartoon of a clockwork man. Twister hops back on her motorcycle and continues on her mission, laughing to herself as she rides away at the terror she instilled in our heroes. I don't want to be a backseat supervillain, but seems like she could have saved herself a trip and just murdered the Titans herself while she was there. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm glad she didn't, but it does seem like kind of a waste of gas. Especially because we see that, apparently, she is riding her motorcycle all the way to Japan. That evening, in an apparently seedy part of... Japan, I guess, Twister opens the door to the back room of a dive bar and finds the Brotherhood of Evil about to accept a briefcase full of money from a group of Japanese gangsters. Neither the Brotherhood nor the gangsters are particularly pleased to be interrupted. The gangsters pull out some guns, and make like they're gonna try to shoot Twister, so our asymmetric antagonist turns on her powers, and within minutes, her assailants go all loopy and throw themselves out of the window in terror. The Brotherhood turn to Twister, and in an array of phonetically spelled out ridiculous foreign accents, ask her what gives. In her own peculiar dialect, Twister explains that the country of Zandia would like to pay the Brotherhood a great deal of money if they would be so good as to murder the Teen Titans. The Brotherhood is intrigued. The next day, the Titans are all better from their bad trips and decide to go try to steal the president of Zandia's garage door opener. Wonder Girl tells Robin that he has a very important job, waiting outside and not touching anything. So glad they brought that secret weapon. The gang starts blowing up tanks and beating up army guys. Jericho uses his powers to hitch a ride inside of Cyborg, only without possessing him, which is, I guess, a thing that he can do, and together they leap a few stories up and Kool-Aid man their way through a window and into the President's office. Once they're inside, Joe jumps out of Cyborg and into a guard's body, and the two titans beat up the rest of the Xandian secret service. Then they rifle through the President's desk until they find his top secret, Remote control. Donna and Beast Boy fly on ahead to the Church of Blood to rendezvous with their teammates outside the gate as they had agreed upon earlier, but Starfire decides to pop into the President's room to see if Vic and Joe need a hand with anything. Cyborg tells her that they're doing just fine. The trio of Titans are about to head off to meet up with the rest of the gang when suddenly a portal opens in the side of the wall, and piling through it come six colorfully dressed individuals who announce their intention to kill our heroes. Shit. When did the Titans run afoul of the Doobie Brothers? Oh wait, my bad. It's the Brotherhood of Evil. Sorry. To be continued. In my defense, they're both sex stats whose name evokes the concept of fraternity. Also, I think at one point Jeff Skunk Baxter was a member of both organizations. And joining us once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good for many things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going?
1: Hey, it's going pretty great. How are you going? Oh, I'm going okay.
0: You know how when it's been rainy for a really long time, there'll be that one sunny day, and it'll kind of make you realize that you didn't notice how much you missed the sun while it was gone? Mm-hmm. I had that kind of recently with watching a basketball game on TV. Really? Yeah, I didn't realize how much I had missed yelling at a television, ball don't lie, whenever anybody misses a free throw. And I had the opportunity to do it the other day, and it felt really, really good.
1: Oh, I'm happy for you. Yeah, yelling yelling at the TV can be a pretty good time. <laughs> Agreed.
0: Speaking of pieces of media that I yelled at,
1: Ah, <laughs> uh, you want to talk about this comic book? Yeah, let's uh let's jump in and do that. Corey, what did you think of this comic book? It was entertaining. It it pulled me along. The cover lets you know right away that you're in for something. Yeah. I was very
0: angry at this comic book. <laughs> really? What in particular angered you? I get really frustrated when writers value plot twists over storytelling and i felt like that was what was happening here i felt like the story had been set up to progress in a very specific direction and then it wasn't even that it wasn't continuous it's we've talked before about wolfman not yes ending himself mm-hmm. just discarding where something had been heading and just going in a completely new direction and i always find that frustrating I found it especially frustrating because it abandoned the Aqualad storyline for the time being in a way that made no sense. And I actually yelled at this comic book, God damn it, Wolfman, stop trying to put your thumb up my butt. You don't need to surprise me to
1: satisfy me. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. So that was kind of my feeling on the comic book. I didn't have that strong of a feeling about it. What instance of plot twist caused you to make that exclamation
0: okay the last issue had set it up that we were going to get the resolution to the hybrid storyline in this issue or if not the resolution at least get near to the resolution of it the last issue ended with wonder girl saying i've got a plan for how we're going to deal with this and then this issue opens with no plan not only for dealing with this, but they decide to just abandon Aqualad and leave him a hostage. It felt like a rushed issue in a lot of ways in terms of that. And there were a few different places where the writing didn't really match up with the artwork in ways that made the story more difficult for me to read. And overall, it was just really frustrating, especially because the two pages that we get that did deal with the Mento storyline were super fun. So It's like that Simpsons thing where it's like, are they ever going to get to the fireworks factory? It was that compounded by the fact that we got a few seconds of the fireworks factory and it was fucking awesome. And then it's like, nah, but let's go to a different story arc that is way less far along and just deal with that for a little bit instead. And then also move a whole bunch of new pieces onto the board. And I just got really frustrated.
1: Yeah, that's understandable. I kind of more so let it wash over me. I thought that it would be a little bit more jarring having, it looks like the creative team changes kind of in the middle of the comic book. Mm -hmm. Not the whole creative team, but the art.
0: Yeah, the first 11 pages are drawn by Eduardo Barreto, who does his own inks for that 11 pages. And then the rest of the book is done by a guy who I keep wanting to call Kelsey Grammer, uh but that's not his name. So I'm going to look it up because it is not Frasier. It is Kerry Gamble. And then the inks for that are by Romeo Tangal. And the art throughout is very good, but there are a few different places where, like I said, there seemed to be some miscommunication between the writing and the art, which I think that and the fact that it is two different pencilers working on the single issue leads me to believe that this was maybe a rushed job that perhaps, was a bit behind Deadline.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I could see that. Which would also make sense, because with the return of Starfire, it references the fact that about a month or two before this issue came out, a second new Teen Titans series had started called Teen Titans Spotlight. And the first two issues of that dealt with Starfire's story arc. So Wolfman wrote that as well, so it would make sense that he was maybe... Spreading himself a little thin at this point.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I actually had to go look that up and read a little bit of it because there's a part in which Starfire's like, You know, I just got back from South Africa and I learned all this stuff. And I was like, Wait, what? When did this happen? Oh, okay, I get it. It happened in this other series that just came out.
0: Yeah, that was especially confusing. It does eventually reference that that was what she was talking about, but it doesn't reference it the first time she brings it up which leads to one of those moments of confusion I was talking about where Starfire shows up and says, when I got here, I found myself in South Africa and I learned some things about humans and about myself. I'm no longer Tamaranian. I'm an earthling now. I belong here. So the fact that this book came out in 1986 and that was very much under the apartheid government of South Africa, that really makes it sound like, yes, when I returned to Earth, I went to South Africa, and seeing apartheid in action made me realize that I do want to be a human being. And I'm like, what the fuck, dude? Mm -hmm. I understand that she had a different story that happened to her while she was there, and that her takeaway from that was a larger part of that. But it was very, very jarring and confusing to read that statement initially.
1: Yeah. And for me, you know, reading this years later and not knowing like what was on the newsstands at the time, it was pretty jarring.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And that page too, that's one of the miscommunications with the art that I was talking about. It's a very nice, very visually interesting page layout that's going on there, but it does make it a little bit harder to read in a way that Barretto's layouts generally don't. Like, it's the smaller panels that are inset into a larger image of Starfire standing and feeling sad about Dick, but the way that your eye is drawn to it, it made you want to read the panels out of order, and that was atypical, I think, of the way that he does things. Did you have a similar reaction to it?
1: Yeah, I did. In fact, a lot of the way that, like, the paneling looks pretty cool in this mm-hmm. issue, but I I did, like have difficulty sorting out which order I was supposed to read them in.
0: And there was at least one instance which added to that in which two of the word balloons were placed in the wrong order, I think. Uh, I think it was during the Mentos conversation, but there's part of his conversation with, I think, Pterodon, where, yeah, the word bubbles are just like switched positions, so you don't know what order to read them in. And there's a few places where stuff like that pops up. There is also a very confusing sequence with Jericho, where I think he was supposed to have leapt into Cyborg's body, but was dormant there. And then that's how he jumps inside of the office building. But that was really unclear and hadn't really been established. And so when Jericho jumps out of Cyborg's body and into another dude, it is very much like a wait where the fuck did he come from
1: yep i had that same experience and in fact i noted this in the scene which they're trying to show him doing the lemur eyes thing but they don't really they just get a little bit green and to me it looks like he is absolutely astounded that beast boy has changed from a tiger into an insect (laughs) and i took a note i was like why is he so surprised that beast boy changed
0: I think I had the same reaction. I actually didn't get that he was making the lemur eyes there.
1: I didn't either initially, but then they showed the little white outlines of him uh, leaping into one of the red suit guys.
0: Mm-hmm, which is coupled by a thought bubble from Cyborg that is maybe the most unintentionally funny <laughs> thing in this comic book. <laughs> and just leads me to believe, wow, Cyborg is a really supportive friend because he says, Joey's entering that guy good going Jericho.
1: (laughs) It's, it is a funny one.
0: Uh, the other main instance of the artwork being confusing unintentionally, because there is some really nicely done intentionally confusing artwork once Twister is introduced as a character. But before that, when we are in Mentos's lair, and again, it's only a two page spread. It is super fun. It is maybe Mento at his most scenery chewing, and you get the dynamic of the rest of the hybrid team trying to placate him, and it's really, really nicely done. But the one thing that didn't scan to me and that I had to reread a few times is Mento has Aqualad suspended over a tank of seawater, and he's torturing him that way because he knows his hour is almost up that he'll die if he's out of water that long. and just when time is about to run out and the rest of the hybrid team is just like, hey, Mento, you don't need to do this. He does something with his Mentos powers. And at first, I really thought he had just released the bonds from Aqualad and let him fall into the tank. But he was saying weird threatening shit as he did that. And then after rereading it a few times, I figured out that he actually used his powers to disintegrate Aqualad into a pile of sand, the sand dropped into the water, and then after the hybrid guys yelled at him for a little bit, then he turned him back into Aqualad. Did you get that that was what was happening?
1: Um, I did, after the third or fourth time that I read through it. Yeah,
0: it was the same thing for me. I feel like those kinds of lapses and that kind of confusion is the sort of thing that shouldn't be happening in a book that's as far along as this with a creative team that's as well established as this. And it hasn't been happening before this, which, as I said, leads me to believe that this may have been kind of a rushed issue.
1: Yeah, and I think that bears out with some of the dialogue as well, not just that bit. Uh, Mm -hmm. Another example is on page 11, which, by the way, speaking of not having a plan, I don't know how the hell the Titans entered Zandia, but Pretty much, they just show up, and everything goes apeshit immediately.
0: It seems like, yeah, their whole plan is to just show up in this country and start fighting... Everybody. Yeah, just until they get some answers. You'll see that in, like, old Daredevil comics, where it'll just, like, show up in a CD bar and start beating people up until somebody gives them information. It's like they did that with a whole fucking country.
1: Mm-hmm. And... The bit of dialogue that threw me off is uh, Cyborg, like the panel is awesome, it's super dynamic and full of action, but Cyborg's running towards the viewer and he says, come on, if we got to rip open a few heads to get inside this oversized loony bin, we got us a country full of ugly heads to rip up. Yeah. I was like, what? Who's, what, who's,
0: what are you doing here? They don't know what they were doing, and it's especially annoying because the last issue ended with Wonder Girl saying she had a plan, and the lead-up to any of the discussion of them dealing with the Church of Blood has been them wanting to take action, but worried about how it will affect public opinion of them, and that the Church of Blood has been winning this battle in the press over perception of the Teen Titans and them being very concerned about that. And then that's just entirely abandoned. And they just decide to, yeah, fly to a country, invade it, and start punching people.
1: Well, even before that, it seems like her decision-making process was to say, well, you know, I think we got to go do it, but um, Beast Boy, why don't you decide?
0: That is such a fucked up thing to do.
1: <laughs> and he's just like, dude, I no, <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. I don't yeah. want to do this.
0: It's like her decision making is just like, okay, so you know what real leadership is? Just passing the buck to whoever happens to be the most emotionally compromised by our current mission. And then just, well, it's out of my hands. Okay, I guess it's on you, Beast Boy. You want to let your dad die, then I guess that's what we'll do. But it's completely on you. That is such shitty leadership.
1: Yeah, totally. It's like, well, if things go sideways, um, just remember you killed Aqualad and your dad. Okay, let's go. Remember, your decision, not mine. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> and also,
0: I don't understand. After saying that she has a huge Rolodex of superheroes to choose from to bring along with her on this mission, she's like, so it's uh, a 15-year-old kid with no superpowers. That's who we'll take. hmm Who also had, like, left the team, what, at this point, like, a few hours ago? Is is that the way the time is working in these past couple of issues? Yeah, who knows? Like, why bother having him leave when they get to Zandia? Sure seemed like Flash had been going with them on this mission, but I think maybe Kelsey Grammer didn't get the note about... I'm sorry, Kerry Gamble didn't get the note about that because the Flash just isn't in that part of the issue. Despite the end of the Eduardo Barreto
1: artwork saying, "All right, I'm going with you." Yeah, no shit. Where is he? That I—I I was just so distracted by everything going on, I didn't even note his absence. Maybe he thought because Donna's doing such a bad job with choices, she is going to bring Hank, even <laughs> though she said she wasn't going to. And Flash is just like, "Nope, I'm out."
0: Yeah, maybe. I mean, he might just show up in the next issue, and it turned out he was there the whole time. Maybe just uh. Vibrating at super speed so you couldn't see him? Yeah, that could be. Yeah, I don't know. Like I said, this issue I found very, very frustrating. I didn't think it made any sense to bring the Brotherhood back in, that Xandia specifically would contact the Brotherhood to help them protect the Church of Blood, especially because the last time we saw the Brotherhood, they were directly fighting the Church of Blood.
1: Yep, that doesn't make sense. But I got to tell you, we have at least 50% more accents.
0: And I was happy to see that. And I'm happy to see the Brotherhood. It just seems like such a jumble of an issue. And I mean, I could be charitable because the introduction of Twister makes that thematically appropriate for the issue because she warps reality and turns it into something that makes no sense. But uh, I don't think that was an intentional choice. And uh, yeah. Like I said, got really annoyed and uh, don't want Wolfman sticking his thumb up my butt anymore.
1: Now, one of the other bits while we're going on a little bit of a rant that I found problematic was one page which condensed uh, Japan down to uh, a bunch of very surprised people, strippers, prostitutes, and an opium den with the words ugly, ugly, stink, smell bad, wash, wash over the top. It's like, really? Oh, my God. Yeah,
0: it is word bubble, so I think we are supposed to get that. That is Twister thinking that, but still, yeah, not great.
1: Yeah, and I get it that like everybody's surprised because her face is all all twisted, mm-hmm. and and she's supposed to be you know she's you know.
0: supposed to be yeah pretty unstable and has had her both her mind and her body warped and turned into asymmetrical gibberish.
1: Yeah, right, which is why she's saying ugly, ugly, stink, smell bad, wash, wash. But it just, coupled with the artwork.
0: Yeah, and the fact that the only caption on there just says, Japan. Yep. Yeah, I also did think it was kind of funny. You get Hungen chastising her for making so much noise and saying, oh, great, now you're going to attract the police. And I was like, dude you are wearing a Zardoz banana hammock and a Vegas showgirl headdress, and you're chastising other people about not being discreet enough? Were you trying not to attract attention?
1: Yeah, well, I guess he's quiet. And compared with the rest of the, the Brotherhood, he, he doesn't particularly stand out as a flashy dresser. <laughs>
0: It just seems like if that's how they're going into things with their costuming and appearances, it doesn't seem like stealth and discretion are necessarily their watchwords. It seems more like they're the kind of guys that are just like, yeah, whatever, fuck all of y'all, we're here, we're badass, do something about it.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fair. Her power, Twister's power, so that's basically to warp people's reality or their view of it and themselves into something scary and twisted. And then it, it lasts for, what, like 30 minutes and wears off?
0: I guess I'm a little bit unclear. Also, it seems weird to have her bring in the Brotherhood when her powers are so analogous to phobias. Seems like they're kind of redundant at that point.
1: Yep. Yeah, well, maybe that'll come to a head later. Maybe.
0: I'd like to think that that's a plan and not just an oversight, but frankly, I don't have a lot of confidence. The other thing about Twister is I appreciate the idea of her dialogue, and it's so close to the style of it being bizarro that I just found myself really wanting it to be bizarro. Mm-hmm. And the ways it differed, I was just like, oh man, she should just be saying, me and love the Teen Titans so much. Yep. It seems like a missed opportunity. Despite my overall frustration with the issue, and I think maybe not even separate from it, there was a lot of really fun, really interesting things that were happening in this issue. And I think maybe that was part of what I found so frustrating the idea that, oh, if this had been done a little differently, it could have been an issue I really liked. But things that I did like, it opens with a gorgeous sequence of. The Talking Head news people and the Church of Blood kind of vaguely outlining what their plan was to resurrect Brother Blood in a few days and launching their media blitz. But I really did like those pages of like Talking News Heads images.
1: Yeah, that whole sequence was super well done. I sometimes get frustrated when there's that much text on a single page in a comic. Mm -hmm. But this was a great way to do it.
0: Yeah, and uh, Eduardo Beretto does a great job doing his own inks in that. It's interesting, this came out in 1986, so this would be around the same time as Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns, which I always think of as being kind of synonymous with that news image talking heads storytelling device. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think this does a really good job with it as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And the depictions of emotion on... The faces of everybody, but especially Mother Mayhem, and then the people in the audience. Like, that whole religious fervor thing
0: is nailed. It's really unsettling to see that on Dick's face as well. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think, like, their plan is to have Dick be the Church of Blood's Tom Cruise? Tom Cruise? Oh, like Scientology? No, no, I would never compare Scientology to an evil cult. I I just wonder if the Church of Blood is maybe going to make Dick slide across the floor in his underpants and lip-sync a Bob Seger song. (laughs) I guess. We'll see. Yeah, but yeah, I think maybe, as I said, my favorite part of the issue was the two-page spread of Mento yelling at Aqualad. His... Unhinged nature is so much fun in this issue, and he's just really, really going for it.
1: He really is. And I love where uh, the hybrid guys are trying to placate him, and he just sees right through it and gets (laughs) really, really mad, calls it claptrap. Yeah, there
0: is just some great dialogue in that sequence. Or what, my winged friend Pterodon? You're taking death too seriously. Here, you want him, you have him. And that's where he resurrects. Aqualad and dumps him in the cube of water. But he follows that up by saying, anyway, it's not him I want. He was never part of the group that offended me. Besides, you can't get angry at a fish, can you? Only Ahab got angry at a fish and he was a madman. Yeah, yeah. I love that lack of self-awareness. Yeah, no, he's, he's one of my favorite unhinged
1: characters. He's a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, I really enjoyed that as well. It also really does, I think, confirm my theory that his wheelchair is a fashion accessory rather than a necessity. The fact that he can dissolve Aqualad's entire body, turn it into sand, and then turn it back into Aqualad really does give lie to the idea that he couldn't fix his legs if he wanted to.
1: Oh, yeah. No, I think it's there's a, a degree of affectation there for sure. He's really mm-hmm. ch- trying to channel uh, Dr. Professor and everybody else. Yep. Did you notice on page, I guess it's page three, right after the television sequence scene, uh, when Beast Boy is on the table as a bunny rabbit, it looks like Donna is going to pick him up and just strangle him <laughs> like like he's some kind of a cat.
0: Yeah, maybe she is being mind-controlled, because you're right. It does look like she's reaching for him with one hand and making a fist with the other. I think the idea is supposed to be that she's upset at Brother Blood and the church, but yeah, it really does look like she's just like, Come here, you fucking rabbit.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: You'll get yours. There's also a coloration miscue in that page where... I don't know if it's in your copy, but Cyborg's teeth are gold, like the same color as Jericho's thingies that hold his cloak on.
0: Oh, totally. It looks like they just inadvertently gave Cyborg a grill. Yep, 24 carats. There is also in that sequence a weird thing. It's on page five, where it's Adeline Kane, who looks so much younger in this artwork, without having the Romeo Tangal inks, that she really does look like she's more of a contemporary of the Teen Titans than one of their mother.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But it's right after Beast Boy gives his little speech about, I'm confused. I feel lousy. I don't know what's right or wrong, and I don't even care. Let's go for Dick and Raven. Blood's a more immediate threat. Let's just go before I change my mind or start crying. When we cut back to see Adeline Kane talking, I think maybe she's supposed to be lighting a cigarette, but there's not a cigarette in her hand. Mm -hmm. And so it looks like she's just holding up a lighter, like maybe Gar was singing that speech as part of like a power ballad at an arena rock show, and she's just holding up her lighter for him.
1: Yeah, or you could read it just like she's so bored by what's going on, she was just like waving her hand over the lighter.
0: Oh, yeah, like she's just like holding her hand over the flame to see how long she can.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: That's the other possibility, I guess. That would maybe make more sense because it does look like Jericho is trying to swipe the lighter out of her hand. Knock it off, mom. (laughs) Just to go back to the Talking Heads uh, news footage reel a little bit. We do have in that the first indication that the Church of Blood is in fact a Christian association which was really surprising to me that they incorporated that as part of it. They make reference to the fact that our first Lord taught us to love our enemies, but now Brother Blood has taught his enemies to love us. This is not a message for America alone, but for all the world. So it's like Mormonism in the fact that it does incorporate Christianity, but then adds to the mythos rather than just being a whole different thing. And I would imagine that must have been fairly controversial at the time.
1: Yeah. Yeah, there was a a lot going on in that dialogue on the panel with the talking heads, and some of it, I felt, really captured that disenchantment that was kind of going on in the 80s with the Cold War and everything, in particular this bit where Mother Mayhem says, you ask yourselves, why? Why spend the time? Why sit before us? Why believe in us? Because in this day, there is nothing else to believe. The family splinters and falls apart. The world teeters on the brink of nuclear destruction. The soul is lost. The happiness we all felt as children is gone. Truly, the end is nigh, because hope is gone. It's like, wow, so much nihilism.
0: Yeah. I wonder how much of that, too, was maybe aping the style of televangelism that was really popular right then. And if that was that kind of language was used in the same proselytizing, because it does kind of also set them up in conversation with televangelism, because unlike other people that are preaching at you on television, we don't want your money, we don't want your children, we just want your belief. And the we don't want your children, I think, would be in opposition to their previous policy of, or perhaps reputation, of getting children to be and teenagers to be their converts. But I think the rest is maybe setting them up in opposition to I think this came out at around the same time that the Jerry Falwell scandal was breaking. And there was a lot of backlash against televangelism at this point, too. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there's a lot going on with that. And it is that sequence, I think, is very well done. This is just kind of a weird little detail, but why do you think they were camping? Um, in Zandia? Yeah, I mean, they flew there on a giant jet that can hover, or presumably park places. I gotta believe the seats on that thing can recline. Is this just like a fun bonding thing for them?
1: Gosh, that's a good question. I don't know. I just assumed because they needed to hide out since the whole country wants to shoot them. Oh, I guess maybe. But yeah, like, why not just hide out in your jet if you've hidden it somewhere?
0: Seems like an odd choice. Maybe Robin implored them to do that because he was like, oh, I didn't get to go to the Grand Canyon with you guys. So maybe we could have our own bonding time. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know I'm a junior member, so I don't get to necessarily stare off into the middle distance and reminisce yet,
1: but uh, I'd just like to be there for it, you know? Yeah, yeah I'm sure he would have appreciated that. And speaking of him being a junior member, what is the deal with once you're 16, you don't have to warm your buns anymore? <laughs> I missed that. Where was it? It's when they're getting ready to go storm the stronghold. Oh,
0: gotcha. Yeah. Well, boy, Wonder sits here warming his buns. Can't wait till I'm
1: 16. <laughs> so he's like has to sit in the car until then. Is that the
2: rule?
0: Yeah, I, I guess Maybe. Maybe he's just referring to his Robin costume and the fact that it has such tiny little short shorts, so he's constantly having to warm his buns. Like he sees that Dick's outfit has tights instead of short shorts and is like, oh, he probably stopped wearing the Speedo when he turned 16. Yeah, I got bad news for you, Robin. He didn't get pants until he was like almost 20. You got a ways to go. But I think their intention is probably saying that he's frustrated because he has to sit out the dangerous adventure because he's so young. Or sometimes he does, because they didn't seem to have any problem with thrusting him into the midst of the danger, either in Switzerland or earlier in this issue. Uh, He is pretty clearly, I think, fighting out of his weight class on this mission. And again, it does seem like an odd choice to include him. Seems like maybe it is just a nod to Wonder Girl being like, okay, Beast Boy, I did put you in a super shitty position when I made you be the one to decide whether we went on this mission. So I'll bring in someone younger than you so that you're not the junior member of the team anymore. And we see that Beast Boy is pretty excited about
1: that, actually. Yeah, that's true. He mentions it. Takes the pressure off me being the fall guy.
2: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: And we do see some unfortunate, I think, mentorship that he is displaying in his relationship with Robin, because we had never seen Robin acting kind of gross and creepy around his female teammates before. But uh, his dialogue is almost interchangeable with Beast Boys at this point, both in that he's got a mebby count of like three, I think, and more unfortunately, in his kind of hitting on Starfire and stuff. Mm -hmm. And Starfire brings it up too. There's actually like a ton of mentions of hormones and puberty in this issue. Mentos mentions it when he's giving one of his little rants. And then also when Starfire shows up, Beast Boy says, hormones don't fail me now, which doesn't make any sense. And I think is kind of on brand for Beast Boy in terms of just making innuendos that don't quite work. But we also see Robin echoes that sentiment, and then Starfire's like, oh man, what is it with you boys? It's gotta be puberty. It must be. And then she gets shot. But uh, it is a weird, like, we haven't had any real mention of hormones or puberty for like, I don't know, 30 issues maybe? And then there's like four of them in this one.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know what is the trigger for it, but it's in a way good to see it called out because i guess it Eh, never mind
0: (laughs) yeah it's if it's gonna happen it's good that it gets called out but i think another way to deal with that would just be to not write in the creepy lines of dialogue
1: Mm -hmm. yeah which are supposed to be read i think as hilarious to the you know ostensibly teenage audience
0: yeah and i think those are supposed to be things that endear those characters to us and it it certainly has the opposite effect, I think.
1: Yeah, I don't know. If I could get in a time machine, go back and read this when I was a, a kid, <laughs> I'm sad to say some of it probably would have resonated with me. <laughs> but
0: Yeah, I, I gotta say also, that would be maybe the most irresponsible use of a time machine I could imagine.
1: <laughs> Wait, I, I just get one shot?
2: <laughs>
0: I mean, yeah. Oh, man. I Oh, man, I did squander that. Oh, well. I, uh, I saw one of those... uh. If you could go back and talk to your teenage self, what three words would you say? <laughs> it's like, don't touch me, because I've seen Time Cop. I know how that pans out. Ah,
1: what a, what a fine movie. hmm
0: Jean-Claude Van Damme at his fourth best.
1: Yeah, it's definitely better than Cyborg. That was the one that didn't make any darn sense, right? Well, that was one of the ones that didn't
0: make any darn sense. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's no blood sports, certainly had no hard target. God, I love hard target. Is
1: that the Southern Twins one?
0: No. It's the one where Wolford Brimley fires an arrow from horseback and speaks with a Cajun accent. Um, it's oh, the yeah. it's the John Woo directed one where Jean-Claude Van Damme plays Chance Boudreau. That's right. So good. Well, there's definitely some more to talk about, but I think most of it should come up in the minutiae. Is there anything you want to hit before we get into the minutiae?
1: Well, I guess one thing, since we don't do the sound effects category, mm-hmm. this is one of the few instances in which I don't know if it was a cyborg or if it was Robin makes a sound effect for cyborgs jumping away. He says, ka <laughs> which I thought that was pretty cute on page 24. That is
0: nice. Yeah. Well, you ready to get into the minutiae? Yeah, let's. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia, Like Corey eating Farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, what category do you want to start off with?
1: Let's start with
0: a panel. The art in here was really good. It was, uh, I think, by both art teams. Mm-hmm. yeah what was your favorite panel
1: well two that tie together are of course the cover which is pretty amazing mm-hmm. and then the kind of internal artwork version of that on page 20 when we find a uh, twister has realized that she cannot transform or mess with cyborg because of his mechanical eye so she has to do it through touch Mm-hmm. And then she grabs him and um, transforms him into you know this warped fear of himself, where he's got a spatula with a corkscrew and a fork and some other widgets on one arm and like a gear for another arm and a little wind up thingy on his hip and a bone surrounded by metal and it's like kind of cartoony and goofy that whole panel, but also I think pretty pretty interesting. He's got a little like Frankenstein's monster. Stitching on his forehead and a metal plug coming out of his temple.
0: Yeah, there is so much little fun details in that one piece. And it's incredibly well done. Yeah, he's turned into like a cartoonish clockwork man, which is on the one hand kind of cute, but also really terrifying. Yeah, it's just really, really nicely done. I also really liked the previous use of Twister's power on the page before that, where she turns Beast Boy into Mr. Tumnus from uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Oh, my. That hadn't occurred to me. I mean, a scarier version of Mr. Tumness certainly. But it did make me wonder if maybe she had heard some of his previous lecherous dialogue and is just like, oh, you want to be a satyr? Okay. Mm. Here, don't take any Turkish delight, asshole.
1: Yeah, that is really well-rendered. He's got mm. a creepy snake arm that turns into having a human hand, and he just looks really terrified of himself.
2: Yeah,
0: and I think it also does kind of play to the idea that, you see, that is what happens with Beast Boy, because he has anamorphic-based powers, and we see that because Cyborg's powers are rooted in him being a cyborg, he turns into that nightmarish clockwork man. And Wonder Girl and Starfire... I think they're generally less well-defined as characters, and they just kind of get a little bit weird-looking. Mm-hmm, yep. um, I liked those a lot. I also was very, very happy to see the first page where the Brotherhood of Evil is reintroduced. It's a well-drawn page. It's not the best-drawn page, but every time I see Monsieur Mala and the Brain, specifically it makes me very very happy and so just how surprised and frankly a little bit embarrassed they look when they are looking up from their briefcase of money at Twister I just really liked that picture
1: yeah it's a good one I think probably my favorite one is it's maybe a little bit more subtle and it's on page seven from the the scene with Mento and it's right after he has I guess, reconstituted Aqualad. Mm -hmm. It's just the angles in it are so wonky. It's the one that's on the top of the page of page seven. So it's Aqualad floating in this fish tank. Yeah. And then Mento and Pterodon arguing.
0: Yeah, I know the one you're talking about. It's got a skewed perspective that is really, really effective to almost demonstrate Mento's mindset. Yeah, it's really cool looking, too. Yeah, it's the one where he's talking about Ahab.
2: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and it's just that cube of water that Aqualad has just been, I guess, reconstituted in. Mm -hmm. I wonder if maybe that was all he did was totally dehydrate him and then poof, just add water, instant Aqualad.
2: Mm. Yeah, pretty cruel. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Corey, let's take this party to the bow zone. What instance of one character calling another character a bozo, either literally or metaphorically, do you want to focus on?
1: Well, I I did take note of what you mentioned earlier um, on page seven, where Mento referred to the the Teen Titans as overly hormonal teenagers Mm -hmm. who were just going to Zandia to whack it out. But I don't (laughs) think that was part of his. uh, He didn't intend it to sound that way. No, but it sure did. (laughs) Yep. That was funny, but I think my favorite one is a little bit of banter between um, Cyborg and Robin in, on page eight, in which Robin is referred to by Cyborg as the king of squirts.
0: <laughs> which again, when coupled with the overly hormonal teenager thing, yeah. thank goodness there wasn't an internet back then for Robin to look that phrase up on. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, and then Robin counters with, watch it, header! I'll whip out a screwdriver and take you apart.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That's cute. I decided to go with one that you mentioned earlier, which is Cyborg very nonsensically saying, come on, if we gotta rip open a few heads to get inside this oversized loony bin, we got a country full of ugly heads to rip up. Ugly heads. It's such a weird mixed metaphor, but... He is just dissing an entire country at that point. I get that it's not a particularly large country, and it has been established that it is entirely populated by criminals. But still, it's a pretty harsh diss. hmm Good choice. Were you able to find a timestamp in this issue?
1: I had one, and maybe another one. So... The first one that I had was in that uh, TV exposition scene that we've been talking about on page one and two. Mm-hmm. And it's the shape of the uh, the TV screen. Oh, that's a good call. Yeah, and I realize that's kind of a long-running thing, like flat screen, you know, wide aspect ratio. Monitors are relatively new. Mm-hmm. But seeing something that was so square with the rounded corners, definitely felt 80s to me
0: yeah it definitely had a throwback feel to it
1: the other one which i did google and thankfully nothing creepy came up but (laughs) i wasn't sure this was a thing and i wasn't able to verify it's a thing but on page 10 there's a mention of an inflatable hugging Hildy doll yeah which i was like oh yeah that sounds like an 80s thing and you know, it gave, Google gave me some pictures of, like, cadge, Cabbage Patch-looking dolls, but nothing that was very verifiably a, a product that went by that name.
0: Yeah, it did definitely, and I think we were supposed to get the impression that Beast Boy was, as a raccoon, saying that he ought to go buy a sex doll, but that it would probably reject him as well.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Which... In turn, led me to referring to him for the rest of the issue as a turd raccoon. <laughs> <laughs> he's a raccoon, and he's being a turd. Makes sense. Yep.
0: I think that is a bit of a timestamp, though. I feel like you would see a lot of like super cheap, inflatable, novelty sex dolls used as punchlines in 80s comedies. Like if you were showing the aftermath of a giant party in like a John Hughes movie, you would maybe see one of those inflatable dolls hanging from the rafters or something. Mm -hmm. So I feel like that does count as a timestamp. Mine is maybe even more of a stretch. There was, of course, a reference to Tony the Tiger, but that, like the TV shape thing, I think is such a long running cartoon mascot that it doesn't really put much of a specific timestamp on it despite being a pop culture reference. Because when he is in tiger form, the turd raccoon beast boy refers to himself as Tony the Tiger. Mm -hmm. But going back to the newsreel footage that opens the issue, it ends with Bethany Snow turning to address the viewer and saying, Believe in Brother Blood. Believe in Brother Blood. That's what Mother Mayhem of the Church of Blood has requested. And I, a reporter, have to ask, how can we go wrong with that? Um, the fact that I was incredulous that a cable news reporter would be that skewed in her perspective and so obviously pandering to the leader of a death cult, um, means that this is not a current comic book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. The fact that that seemed out of place to me, I think, is a bit of a timestamp. Yeah. That's a good point, sadly. Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion in this issue did you find most worthy of note?
1: Yeah, one of the first ones that jumped out at me was it's I guess in the the meeting hall of Zandia, maybe Zandia's leadership. Which is a very strange mix of people wearing somewhat normal, like eighties, I don't know, drug dealer suits. Mm-hmm. And then also weird like superheroish attire or super villainish attire, and out of that group, I called her Maria in blue and white, stands out, and she's wearing what looks like, I don't know, like one of those leather motorcycle racing suits because it's got kind of a high like a turtleneck and then uh, like a super high-waisted white belt and leather gloves. mm-hmm, very eighties.
0: And a gold shell necklace around her neck that made me wonder if it was supposed to be reminiscent of Foolkiller's outfit.
2: Mm. Because
0: it is almost a cross between the Fantastic Four and Foolkiller, but with a turtleneck. I noticed that as well. I also noticed right after she finishes speaking, the floor is yielded to a dude who looks kind of like the comedian from Watchmen, but is dressed like a member of FemForce from the Defenders comics we were just reading oh, yeah. with the uh fuchsia gauntlets yeah fuchsia gauntlets and turquoise tunic with a with a purple belt and holster i thought that was noteworthy but uh mostly i noticed twister's outfit which is awesome and super appropriate to her name and power set
1: yep i know i was thinking to myself when i was on on the page uh, preceding that, like, oh, wow, there's so many outfits around this table, there's going to be a lot to talk about, and then I get to the page that shows Swister, and think, nope, that's pretty much going to be the thing.
2: Yeah.
0: It is, frankly, really cool-looking, and I don't understand how it is put together, but it just it has this asymmetry that is mirrored in her facial features, but it just kind of works. Like, there's a high-collared like crop-top With, like I said, the Dracula collar that only has one sleeve. And there's just a section of it missing. And she's wearing like pants that have one side that is like the back of Hulk Hogan's shirt that he would rip open where it just has the slats on it. Mm -hmm. And her boots are just super cool looking and have like huge flare at the top of them. They go up past her knees. There's just a lot going on and it's pretty cool looking. Yeah, it is pretty cool looking. And she's got a wallet chain, which, you know, good for her. Mm -hmm. Don't want anybody to take that wallet. Corey, who did you have as the president of the drama club? Which character in this book was acting, or rather overacting, in the most dramatic fashion?
1: I had a couple runners-up. One is, I guess, ostensibly Yakuza guy on page 23. When their party gets intruded on by Twister, he looks so shocked that that's happening as he's looking up from his briefcase of money. And then on the following page, when she puts the Twister on them, he's gesturing with an open hand and saying, "What are you? Why are you doing this? Take it away! Don't do it anymore!" And like everybody in that panel looks horrified and shocked, but he in particular does.
0: Yeah, they are all having very bad trips, but. He specifically seems to be having the type of bad trip you might read about in a leaflet in the school nurse's office.
1: Very dramatic. I also had note of a panel we talked about earlier already when Jericho is super surprised Beast Boy is turning into a bug, but it <laughs> turns out that that was just because he was taking over somebody's body. But I think in any issue that has Mento, it's going to be pretty hard to find somebody else to be the president of the drama club. Yeah because he just steals the show. And I don't even know if I would narrow it down to one panel in particular, but perhaps um, on the top of page six, where he's looking very angry and, you know, making a almost clenched fist, and his little, what do you call those things on the top of his head that shoot electricity out? Yeah, his thought nubbins. Yeah, his thought nubbins are just sputtering. He's so, I guess he's sputtering mad.
0: Yeah, it's quite a thing. I I had him in contention. I also, for her lighter tricks, I think I want to put Addie Kane in the conversation. But ultimately, I actually decided to go with Starfire for when they have broken into the high office of the Xandian consulate or whatever. Her just saying, Well, I mean, since we're here, we should probably trash this hotel room, right? <laughs> and everybody else is just like. Uh, no, we're we're actually pretty pressed for time. And also, we did already break a lot of things. But I, I get where you're coming from. I guess that's a good impulse. But yeah, just her decision to just be like, hey, while well, we're here, you want to fuck with their stuff? Mm-hmm. I think that was just a kind of nice over-the-top touch. And uh, definitely seems like a theatrical move at that point.
1: It's so funny, that panel, too, because... Maybe it's just a copy I have, but because Cyborg looks really mad at her and and Jericho just looks, like, shocked. Like, what? (laughs) We can do that? (laughs) Yeah.
0: Ripping open ugly heads and fighting the military is one thing, but destruction
1: of private property. Starfire, how could you? Yeah, and he's, like, really underhanded with... His response, too, he says, I can be as vengeful and low as the next guy, but we haven't got the time.
0: (laughs) It's so passive aggressive. He just called her vengeful and low. (laughs) Pretty good. Every issue of a Teen Titans comic has a Beast Boy, the worst of Teen Titans, and also an Aqualad, the greatest of Teen Titans. In this issue, who was your Aqualad?
1: Yeah, um, Aqualad, you know, did, I guess, the best with what he had to work with, but I I didn't vote for him, who I did vote for, for kicking a lot of butt for wanting to trash a hotel room, and also (laughs) for refusing to let an overeager Gar hug her at any point in this comic book. (laughs) And also making a good tactical choice to to go help Cyborg out, because she's more powerful Starfire
0: Yeah, I actually had the same one. I had Robin as my backup for just having a good attitude, fighting above his weight class, and following orders. But yeah, I think Starfire did a great job, and also I was happy to see her back in the book. Nice. Conversely, who did you have as your beast boy?
1: Tempting as it was to go with the turd raccoon himself for kind of getting back to his creeper ways. I actually went with Donna for lack of planning And I know she said, hey, I screwed things up when I was in charge, and I don't want to be in charge anymore, but she's still kind of running the show, and uh, it just is not going great. And also, like, her attempt to defer responsibility onto Beast Boy, who, as you pointed out earlier, is probably one of the more emotionally fragile members of the team.
0: Not cool. Yeah. He's the one who's the most emotionally compromised by their current situation and he's also the youngest member of the team until Robin comes back, for her to just be like, you know what real leadership is? Me? Passing the buck. So, Beast Boy, this is all on you. Who do we let die? Fuck you, lady! Yeah, not cool. Yeah, I had that as the opposite of leadership. Bad job. Yeah, it's Wonder Girl. In the rest of the issue, it seems like she does an okay job, but you can't recover from that. Also, I wanted to know what her plan was for rescuing Aqualad, because she said she had one, and we'd never get to see it.
1: Mm -hmm. Wow, interesting. We are uh, two for two. We have an accord. Yeah, that's a bit of a rarity. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Well,
0: Corey, I have but one final question I must put to you. Waspoot! That's right. We're going to look away from Mr. Jupiter for the time being. And Aqualad, we know what he's up to. He's getting disintegrated and then rehydrated into a fully functioning Aqualad. But in the meantime, in the year of our Lord, 1988, as we do go by the date of the reprints, and the month of our Lord, February, what is Speedy
1: probably up to? waspoot Spoot. Was Spoot. In February... 1988, Speedy was in a, a bit of a bad way with his habits. Oh, dear. Again. And uh, he'd been dodging U.S. authorities, uh, hanging out down in Panama and helping the Noriega regime with some of what they were getting up to. But later, or actually earlier in that year, was when uh, General Manuel Noriega was indicted by a U.S. federal grand jury on drug trafficking and racketeering and some other charges. And Speedy saw an opportunity here, so he he bribed some of the government guys and got in and was able to steal loads and loads and loads of Panamanian coke, which he then loaded onto a stolen Russian ship, a frigate called the uh, Bezeventi, and he set sail, him and his giant pile of cocaine, and uh, eight days or so later, in a coke-fueled navigation error, he had made it all the way to the Black Sea, bumped his frigate into the USS Yorktown, which was a a naval carrier who was in the Black Sea at that time also, which really went a long way to further heightening the awful tensions of the Cold War in one of the very rare instances where the USSR's and USA navies had an encounter. So, Hmm. bad job, speedy.
0: Fair enough. Well, that was not the only instance of tightening tensions between two adversaries that Speedy was responsible for in February of 1988. See, perhaps because his adventures in Panama, and I gotta believe the whole time he was there, he was just singing that Van Halen song to himself at the top of his lungs, right? You know it. Yeah, because that didn't pan out for him, he found himself a bit strapped for cash. And this is especially distressing to Speedy because he was a new father at the time, and Cheshire was hitting him up for child support. So you definitely don't want to have a super assassin be on your ass about that shit. So he decided he needed to come up with some cash. And he had seen that the Teen Titans were, to his mind, owed some money by Mayor Ed Koch, who had previously (laughs) promised to rebuild their T-shaped skyscraper for them and then tried to back out of the deal. So Speedy, claiming to be an emissary for the Teen Titans, went to Ed Koch's office and uh, tried to lean on him a little bit. Ed Koch didn't care for that. He's like, wait a minute, aren't you that, uh, you weren't with the team when they saved the city from that demon who kept pooping on that skyscraper? who are you anyway? Wait a minute. I read about you. You're the disgraced member of the team who who had that drug problem and had to do some jail time. And he's like, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm a government agent now. I, I work for the government and I help fight drug dealers because he claimed that was what he was up to. And maybe, honestly, he may have been working for the CIA and playing both sides of the fence in that Panamanian adventure that you outlined. But Ed Koch was just like, I can't believe this guy was pardoned for his crimes and he gets to work for the government? I'm taking this to the top. And so that led to Ed Koch calling out Reagan for, in his words, being soft in the war on drugs uh, and continuing to aid foreign countries that he saw as drug producing countries, countries like Panama. And it made headlines because Koch actually called Reagan a wimp in an interview. And yeah, that really heightened the tensions between Mayor Ed Koch and Ronald Reagan. And that is what Speedy was probably up to in February of 1988. Dang. Wow, Speedy. Yep. Busy Speedy. Very busy. Well, Corey, thank you for joining me and talking about this comic Felt good to get some of that stuff off of my chest. Sorry, it was more of a rant than I had intended. Oh, quite all right. And we'll be back soon to talk some more defenders. In the meantime, if you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so by reaching us at Titan Up the Defense, P.O. Box Two Zero Three One One, Portland, Oregon Nine Seven Two Nine Four. As this is the future, we can also be reached electronically ttwasteland at gmail.com. We're also up on all sorts of internet-y type places in the social medias. Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, Brinder, uh, uh, Netscape 2.0, you know, all your favorite internets. Just uh, type Titan Up The Defense into your web browser and see what the fisherman brings in today. Probably a fresh batch of my random thoughts and opinions. Lucky you. And hey, if you can't find us there, there's another place you can try looking. It's inside your heart. We'll be there. We've been there for a while. It's nice. We like it in your heart. So spacious.
1: Yeah. You guys have such a big heart.
0: What I like about it is its open floor plan. Like, I mean, it's very large, but it feels even bigger. I think that's because I, uh, I knocked down that retaining chamber wall. Mm. Uh Uh-oh. Sorry about that. Um, we'll, we'll put it back up. Got some spackle, some bondo. Well, we'll fix that before too long. But still, it's nice in here. If you would like to support the show monetarily, a great way to do that is to visit us at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material. There's the monthly podcast, What the Duck? A podcast most foul, but with a W, because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That's a show that I co-host with my wife, Lisa, about Howard the Duck comics from the 70s. And there's also a ton of video reviews I've been doing of classic comic books. I did some reviews of more recent comic books and video form up there, too. And there's a bunch of extra podcasts and just other stuff up there. You should poke around and enjoy yourself. And that is available exclusively to our donors. So uh, if you would like to kick down a couple of bucks, you get access to all of that stuff. But more importantly, from my perspective, at least, it is a really nice way for you to let us know that you appreciate the work that we're doing and would like us to be able to continue doing it. Uh, So thank you for that. If you'd like to support the show non-monetarily, a way that you can do that is to leave us a review in any of the hundreds of places reviews can be left. And if you're not sure if it's a place where a review can be left, only one way to find out, try leaving a review there. See if they kick you out. I don't think they will. I don't think they've got the guts. But if you don't want to risk it, why not just go to whatever podcast listening application you're using right now, hack it open, say enhance four times to your computer, and then type in five stars, tighten up the defense. It's the wave of the future, and I caught it. And the tide rolled me into a town filled with adventure and entertainment where I built a house. It's a big house, and I didn't need any zoning permits. That's five stars, all right. That's what I'm saying. No, you don't want to have to get zoning permits, and you don't need to, to enjoy this show. So thanks. And, uh, you know, thanks for listening, too. I appreciate that. So... Until next time. Stop sticking your thumb up my butt to surprise me, Marv Wolfman. Cupping. <laughs> okay, bye.
2: bye.